0: Some people think the absence of problems and the blessings of God in their life means everything's just fine. They say, I must be living right with God. No one in my family is sick. I must be right with God. I have plenty of money in my pocket. I must be right with God. I'm not feeling any pain.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Berge is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Buford, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 4-10. to In our last study, we were introduced to the person who does not see themselves as depraved and wicked. They compare themselves to the type of individual described in the latter half of chapter 1. But this so-called respectable person is, in many cases, in greater peril because he puts off the call of God. And today, in a message entitled, The Judgment of the Respectable Sinner, we'll see that this individual's stubbornness is simply adding to his judgment. Take
0: the word of God, would you, this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through Romans, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. For me, the letter to the Romans is probably the most challenging, the most mind-stretching, the most life-changing books in all of the New Testament. It has rightly been called the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And if you can grasp the great doctrines of the book of Romans, the whole of Scripture will be opened up to you. Many of the greatest Christians in the history of the church said that this was the greatest book in all of the Bible. John Chrysostom, a 4th century expositor of the Word of God, who has left us the earliest written commentary on the book of Romans, called it the Cathedral of Christianity. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote this concerning this letter, The epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which is well worth and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but that also he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. Luther said, learn it. Feed on it every day. In fact, be so committed to this epistle, he encouraged us to memorize it. That's how important he thought it was. This book is so thought-provoking, so life-changing, that if you will seriously seek to understand it and apply it to your heart and your life, You will become a strong, mature Christian, and you will find yourself as an instrument in the hand of God that He is able to use. Now, as you're finding the text, again, it's Romans 2. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When He is speaking about those who would say they are born again, with those who would say they are Christians, He said, Not a few people, but a great multitude of people are in for the shock of their lives. On the day of judgment, these people who think they are saved, who think they are going to heaven, who think they know Christ personally, are going to hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus in that chapter of scripture speaks of those who are religious, but who are lost. And so to our passage this morning, Paul deals with men and women who are moral, some religious, but who are lost. Now last time, if you were with us, and we'll review it, to bring us into the context this morning, we examined the first three verses of Romans 2. And I'm calling this section of scripture, the first half, respectable sinners. There's a clear point of demarcation when you come to verse 17, where he will deal with another group. But we spoke last time about respectable sinners, and today I want us to think about the judgment of respectable sinners. Let's get a running start into verse 4 where we left off and begin reading in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds." To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but only unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. I'd like to start this morning by reading a modern-day parable of sorts. Listen carefully. Once upon a time, there was a man shepherding, tending his sheep at the edge of a country road. A brand-new Jeep Grand Cherokee screeched to a halt next to him. The driver, a man dressed in a designer suit, expensive shoes, a flashy wristwatch and sunglasses, asked the shepherd, Say, if I can guess how many sheep you have... Will you give me one of them? The shepherd looked the man over and then looked at the sprawling field of sheep and said, all right. The young executive parked his SUV, connected the notebook, computer, and wireless modem, and entered a NASA site, scanned the ground using his global positioning system, opened the database, and printed his report on a mini printer. He turned to the shepherd and said, you have exactly 1,586 sheep in your flock. The shepherd answered, that's right. Wow, you you can have one of my sheep. The young man took one of the animals and put it in the back of his sheep. The shepherd called out and said, hey, before you leave, if I guess your profession, will you pay me back? The executive smiled and said, sure, go ahead and try. The shepherd said, you're a consultant. The man said, that's right, but how did you know? The shepherd responded very simply. First, You came here without being called. Second, you charged me to tell me something I already knew. Third, you don't really understand anything about my business. And I'd like to have my dog back, please. (laughs) In our last time together, we saw that it is possible to be religious and moral, but to be lost, or to put it in the words of the parable, not to be able to distinguish a dog from a sheep. Well, Paul wants you to know the difference. God wants you to know the difference. And so he's been demonstrating man's need for the gospel. And nothing will keep people away from Christ like not seeing that they really have a need. People who are unwilling to admit their need to see themselves as God sees them will never come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in the first 17 verses of chapter 1, Paul gives a salutation. He tells us that he wants to come to Rome and why. And then he gives us the theme of the gospel. And without apology, he said, I am eager to come to you who are in Rome to preach the gospel. And he tells us why. He says, Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So having introduced the gospel, having mentioned the righteousness of God, which becomes a major theme here in the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, he then goes on to proceed to show us our need for the gospel. And to demonstrate our need, he paints for us the universality of sin, that every person in every segment of society, wherever they may find themselves, are sinners in need of a savior. And he's like a a prosecuting attorney. And the procedure he uses with each realm of culture is identical. He brings an, an accusation against each one. And then he marshals the evidence. And he secures a guilty verdict. That all people without exception are without excuse before God. And his thesis is the same with every segment of the human race. That no one, absolutely no one can claim innocence before God because absolutely no one can claim ignorance about God. And he shows with each segment of the society that the information that God has given them, they have not lived up to it, and so they are inexcusably guilty. If you remember, beginning in chapter 1 and in verse 18, and I'm hoping that you with me will be able to think our way all the way through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Beginning in 118, he paints a picture of the idolatrous pagan, the man who has never been to church, a man who has never had a Bible, a man who has never seen a written copy of the Ten Commandments. And Paul accuses them of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Well, people would commonly ask, well, how could they possibly suppress the truth, these pagans, since they didn't have any truth to suppress? Are they not rank heathens with no Bible at all? And Paul would answer in one twenty by saying, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. They have the evidence of creation around them that is a picture of what God is like. And they have their conscience within that condemns them before a holy God. The reason they live like pagans is not because they don't have any information, but because they suppress the information that God has given them. And so Paul says they are without excuse. No possible defense, inexcusably guilty. And so he taught us in chapter 1 that because of that, God gives them up in their rebellion. And the rest of the chapter... The last 15 verses of chapter 1 describes what happens when a man, when a woman takes the revelation that God has given and they suppress it. And he gives that horrible downward spiral of an individual or potentially a society that is disintegrating before a holy God. Now when you come to chapter 2 in the first half, and we'll see there's another clear break when we come to verse 17... In the first half, he deals with the self-righteous moral person. The person who's lived a relatively clean life. And this person would be quick to condemn the people described in chapter 1. They'd say, you're absolutely right, Paul. Homosexuality is indeed a perversion. Idolatry is the peak of paganism. Preach against those immoral people. I just thank God that I'm not like one of them. And so chapter 2 begins with the word, therefore. And we noted last time that it does not simply look back to the moral man's condemnation, but it looks forward anticipating what is going to follow. It could be translated, for the following reason, or therefore. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And so we saw last time that the moral man makes some judgments about other people. And in his making judgments about other people, he is claiming that he understands God's moral standards. That he has light about God. And Paul is going to show the very moral standards that he uses to condemn other people he is guilty of not following. Last week, I was in Boston, and a man came up to me with a list. He said, Pastor, here's 194 contradictions in the Bible. And one of them that he mentioned was Matthew 7, 1, which we just recently uh, studied in reference to this section of Scripture, when Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. In John 7, where Jesus said to judge with righteous judgment." God has no contradictions in the Bible. I went through the first five just like that with him. He said, said, but what about, I said, but what about is your problem is your heart is not teachable. And I said, one year from now, you won't be in this church. This is the third church you've come to because the previous two have thrown you out. Creating division and havoc amongst some of God's people. And the only reason these people are accepting you is because they love people unconditionally. But there will come a point when their love will turn to disposing of you to protect the flock of God. There are no contradictions in the Bible. What God is condemning in the first three verses of Romans 2 are those individuals who know the standards of God. They accuse people of being violating those standards while they themselves are practicing the same thing. And so the first 16 verses deal with what I've been calling respectable sinners. Moral people who may live on a higher plane than the folks described in the first chapter. They would listen to Paul's explanation in the last 15 verses of chapter 1 and say, Yes, Paul, get them. They need the gospel all right. Your message is for the thief, the prostitute, the drunkard, the homosexual, for the idol worshiper. But I thank God that I'm a good person. And so the moral man that is described is a person who would have a good reputation in his community. He would be a provider for his family. Who would probably never be found in jail and may even be found in a church. And so Paul is dealing with those people who would say, well, listen, I'm not perfect, but I'm not nearly as bad as the people that you just described. I'm a pretty decent person. I go to church. I live by the golden rule. I attempt to follow the Ten Commandments. And that's what our human tendency is, to measure ourselves by other people of whom we are better rather than by the standard that God gives what Paul is going to describe in great detail in the third chapter, the righteousness of God. Of such people, Jesus said, truly I say to you the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. There are folks who who think next to the prostitute and to the rip-off artist, they're not that bad, that their righteousness is premier. But next to a holy God, next to the righteousness of God, it falls short. If you're on a 30-story building and you're looking down, you can't distinguish between a person who's 5'5 or 5'8". You can't tell, they basically all look the same. Before we're done, Paul is gonna say, at core, we are all the same. There is none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And while you may be three or four inches taller morally than someone else, next to holy God, the ground is level. And so Paul in this second chapter is dealing with a self-righteous person who lives a relatively clean life. And he says, therefore, you too are inexcusably guilty. And so he's going to demonstrate that the judgment of God rightly falls upon these self-appointed judges. Now, two aspects concerning the judgment of the respectable sinner that I want to underscore this morning in your thinking. If you want to take notes... The first is that God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable. He just said in verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. When you judge another person, you have no excuse. Because even the moral critic at some time or another has in some degree or another been guilty of the same thing. You may not overtly commit the act of adultery, but when you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery, Jesus said. You may not overtly steal money from someone, but you might permanently borrow something. You may not overtly stab an individual and and take that individual's life, but you can stab them with your words. You may accuse another person of being defensive, but you'll just say, oh, well, you know, I'm just setting the record straight. You may accuse another person of being a liar when in reality you stretch the truth and exaggerate. And so when God is condemning these persons who judge others for committing the very sins that they are guilty of, he is saying, listen, the fact that you point your finger at them reveals the fact that you understand my standard and you too are without excuse. He says in verse 1, they will be without excuse. When he comes to verses 2 and 3, he will say, therefore, they are without escape. And so in verse 2, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Now let me remind you of the change in pronouns again. In chapter 1, he is dealing with the third person plural. When you come to chapter 2, there's an immediate change of pronouns. In chapter 1, if you look back at verse 20, he's been talking about those people, how they are without excuse. In verse 21, how they knew God. How they did not honor or give thanks. How they became futile in their speculations. He describes how their foolish heart was darkened. And then in verse 22, how they became fools. In verse 25, how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in verse 28, how they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. But when you come to chapter 2, Paul moves from the general plural... To the specific singular, and he goes to a singular second second person pronoun, you singular. He talks about how you are without excuse, how you pass judgment, how you condemn yourself, and how you will not escape the judgment of God. Now, the 1901 translation of what today we call the New American Standard was called the ASV, the American Standard Version. And let me read it to you. It's a little wooden, but it's more literal. In fact, the literal rendering, if you have the NAS this morning with marginal notes, is given out there in the margin, but it's helpful. Verse 2 reads literally, And we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against them that practice such things. Now, we may try to dodge what the Bible plainly says, but God's judgment, Paul says, is according to the truth. In other words, the truth in the end is going to be revealed, and so God will be able to demonstrate justly that his judgment against lost people rightly falls upon them. Now certainly there are a lot of cases on this earth where the truth somehow has been hidden or twisted, but you cannot fool God Almighty. I heard of a man who was arrested or was standing before a judge for uh, for stealing a wristwatch and they tried to prove that he had stolen this expensive wristwatch. And they just couldn't prove it. And so finally the judge said, you're acquitted. And the man said, what does acquitted mean? Does that mean I have to return the watch? <laughs> now you can fool an earthly judge. But you cannot fool our Heavenly Father, because His judgment is according to truth. Every sin you have ever committed has been recorded. God is keeping a record, and someday, according to truth, His judgment will rightly fall upon those who are lost. And unless you have been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, His judgment is inescapable. Look at verse 3. We studied this verse last time. But do you suppose this, O man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Did you notice in verse 1, Paul says you have no excuse. And then in verse 3, when he asks this rhetorical question, he says you have no escape. Now, some people can get away with crimes they have committed. When I was a boy, there was a neighbor who uh, had ripped off someone of millions of dollars and back then the law was written in the 1960s in such a way that if you stole from someone millions of dollars at least in the state of Massachusetts and could somehow escape the police for seven years the statute of limitations would run off and you could pull it off and we'd go by this house this magnificent mansion that was being built and I would say dad who's building that and he'd say well that's so and so and He stole some $8 million and he's living off the coast of Massachusetts in international waters in a yacht. And he's trying to escape judgment. And in the end, he pulled it off. And he walked away with millions of dollars. And so you may get some loophole in the law, some tricky lawyer, the ignorance of a prosecutor or the weakness of a jury and get away with it. But you will not get away with it before God Almighty. In His justice system, there is absolutely no escape. And there's nothing we can do through meritorious works. So this man habitually was generous and gave to charity. There's nothing you can do through meritorious works to escape the judgment of God. And so Paul is building a case against all of humanity. And when he finally deals with each and every group, then he'll bring the whole world before God's judgment seat. And he'll say in chapter 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, they've become useless. There is none who does good, not by God's definition. There is not even one. And so the Bible says it is appointed for a man to die. And after this comes judgment. No matter how slack you may be in this life in keeping appointments, I can promise you there are two appointments you're going to keep. One is death. And the other is the judgment of God. Now, some people argue, well, God is too loving. God is too kind. God is too understanding, too forgiving to judge me. He understands my weaknesses and God is going to let me off. And so they reason somehow they can sin with impunity and get away with it. And they create a God in their own mind, in their own image. Like Rob Bell has done in his best-selling work, Love Wins. And he emphasizes verses like we're reading today. He emphasizes verse 4 where he speaks of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. But he ignores the other attributes of God Almighty. Very often I've heard liberal theologians quote Psalm 103.8. Listen, you take a verse out of context, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. The Bible says there is no God, but contextually it says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. You take Psalm 103.8 that King David wrote out of context, and you distort, distort what God is like. The Lord, David writes, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And that's where they stop and they don't read the next verse. The next verse says, He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Or to say it differently, there's coming a day when the patience of God will run out. The dam of God's compassion will give way to to his fury, to his wrath. Listen to what Paul says here in verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? To twist God's word, to manipulate what has been revealed about God's character in the Bible is blasphemy. It is to impugn God's character. And it's not faith, it's presumption. Now, understand what this verse teaches. It speaks here of God's riches. I have it underlined God's kindness, God's tolerance. God's patience and what is all that for? To lead you to repentance. The blessings of God are, are to give you space that you might change your mind, that you might repent. It's not to give you space to sin. And some people think that the absence of problems and the blessings of God in their life means everything's just fine. They say I must be living right with God. No one in my family is sick. I must be right with God. I have plenty of money in my pocket. I must be right with God. I'm not feeling any pain. It doesn't mean necessarily you're right with God. Jesus said he causes his son to to, to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God in his mercy will very often express his blessings on a lost world to get them to repent. The kindness of God is designed to lead you to repentance.
1: To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 2 entitled, The Judgment of the Respectable Sinner, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ROM7. But we really do recommend that you use the Search the Scriptures app because... Once you've downloaded it from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, you can listen to all of Dr. Brogy's messages, plus access archives of his radio call-in program, The Bible Line. Speaking of which, if you've got a question about the Bible or living the Christian life, you can submit it online at searchthescriptures.org and then listen Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern on the website for your answer. You can also call in during that time and go live if you prefer and have your question answered right then. Just call 843-525-1859 Tuesdays at 11 Eastern to go live or any other time to dictate your question. Tomorrow we continue our look at the judgment of the respectable sinner. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.